What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What's left of a person's life at the end, except for the memories that we have of them and then maybe some simple artifacts? Driving back the 27-some hours from South Dakota to New York, I would look back at Dad's toolbox in the back seat. That's what's left of a life. And what am I going to do with that? And how will I incorporate that into my own life? On this episode of the podcast, I speak with author, winemaker, wooden boat builder, and my friend, Trent Presler, in person on the North Fork of Long Island. Trent is the author of the memoir, Little and Often, which is Trent's story about coming to terms with his relationship to his father after his death. After his father's passing, Trent inherits his father's beat-up wooden toolbox and embarks on a journey to finally build something with his hands. A wooden canoe that would come to symbolize so much about his father's secret history and Trent's own struggle for self-respect. From Sugar 23, I'm Angela Ledgewood and this is Lit Up. I'm so thrilled to have Trent Presler on Lit Up. Welcome, Trent. Thank you so much for having me. So I have to tell everyone that this is, we are doing this in person and Trent and I have just made a like special raspberry, strawberry, homemade cocktail and just being in the presence of an actual human opposite is so thrilling. Um, So thank you so much for, for being here. So let's give everyone a little bit of context for the impulse you had to write the book. It starts out one Thanksgiving or just prior to Thanksgiving with a phone call from your dad. Yes. Can you tell us why that call was so momentous? My father and I had been estranged for a very long time, probably close to 14 years. It wasn't the kind of estrangement where you think it was a fiery blow up and then you never speak. It was just this cold war where kind of we gradually just stopped uh, interacting. 
it was primarily rooted in the fact that I'm gay and he was a fundamentalist Christian living in South Dakota. He was a cattle rancher, Vietnam veteran. He was kind of a grizzled type of human. So he called me, this was November of 2014, and invited me back to South Dakota for Thanksgiving. And the call kind of came out of nowhere. And I went back to see him for Thanksgiving. And as it turned out, he was dying of cancer, pretty advanced uh, cancer. And he had many kinds of cancer because he had been exposed to Agent Orange in Vietnam. And it was kind of just blowing up. I went back to South Dakota. I lived here on the North Fork of Long Island and I drove. I thought it might be nice to kind of get on the highway and clear my head. Uh, and I arrived, we had dinner, and the very next morning he was in the hospital and ended up being um, his, you know, his final stay in the hospital. During that whole process and when we were saying goodbye because I had to come back to New York for work, and I was so busy and so focused on my career. And I said, okay, I got to go and I'll come back at Christmas. And he said, he kind of stopped and he said that there was something in the garage that he wanted me to take. Um, and I just sort of brushed it aside because my parents' garage, as I think many folks' garages, were, was kind of messy and full of junk. And I was like, oh, sure, sure, whatever. <laughs> I'll get it at Christmas. So I came back to New York and he died. And... I went back and my mother kind of took my hand into the garage and showed me in this, this sort of corner of the garage filled with cobwebs and kind of filtered light, my father's toolbox. And that was my inheritance. And he was trying to give me my inheritance while he was still alive and I was just so not focused and frankly just in denial that he was even dying. But yeah, so that began the odyssey of building a wooden boat with his tools, and then eventually writing this book. <laughs> I want to think about your life before this happened, like before this phone call, the type of mid-30-something, hyper-successful man, but feeling like something was missing. Or Yes. You've said in the book so beautifully that you didn't fit in either place. You weren't the yeah. kind of rugged, masculine, whatever that is supposed to mean, yeah. kind of cowboy like your dad and never fit there potentially because of your sexuality. Mm -hmm. I guess the question is, were you in a moment of reevaluation mm -hmm. then? Well, I was, I fled South Dakota when I was 18 to go to college. I think in part, I was fleeing because I was gay and I knew it wasn't a friendly place. So in some ways, being gay saved my life. But I, I also came out to New York to go to grad school at Cornell. And then when I got a PhD and I became eventually became CEO of a winery here on the North Fork. And I guess I would describe myself as successful and career-oriented, but it was almost that that seems all cliche. What it really was was that I felt so unable to fit into New York's culture because I wasn't from here. And New Yorkers have a very specific kind of way about them. And I always felt like I was too gay for the country, but too country for the city. <laughs> I got here and I felt like, okay, I'm in New York, but <laughs> now what? And I hadn't really had any sort of introspective process of what it meant that I had come from a ranch in the middle of nowhere to go then essentially running a, a winery and going back and forth to work in 
in Manhattan and Brooklyn. The irony of it was that I came out here to study farming. I studied viticulture. And so it was like still agriculture, but it was this fancy city version of it because we were selling wine to these fabulous restaurants in New York City. So I could still kind of play farmer <laughs> and pretend that I was had a, a tap into my roots, but that I was living in a more fancified way. And I had a terrible and disastrously short marriage that ended just a few months before my father's phone call. And I was just kind of, I think, floating along trying to play the play the game in New York of partying and spending money and not necessarily focused on anything that I was doing with my hands, so to speak. And my father giving me the tools was the first time where I felt some compulsion or even any motivation to pick up a tool and make something with my hands. My whole life I'd been kind of an academic and studied, you know, I have two master's degrees and a PhD and nothing I had ever really done in life was about craft. It was always about trying to get ahead with my, with my brains, I guess. But it's interesting that what you studied is the land and farming and agriculture. Yeah. Something that interests me is that you talked about the experience of doing your PhD and how laborious it was to count the clusters of grapes. Can you relate that experience and can you tell us about it to the brick experience you had and how actually the title Little and Often is kind of your father's manifesto, even if he might not have put those words exactly in that way. Yes, exactly. Well, when I was a teenager, I had this terrible summer job and I had to scrape paint off of a brick barn. And it, a barn is too romantic of a word. It was more like a warehouse. And it was red brick that had this peeling white paint and I was given like a, a steel metal brush to scrape it off with. And, you know, the first day I cut my knuckles and I was miserable and it was hot. And this was in South Dakota. And the, the barn was kind of near like the cattle stockyards. So there was this stench of, of cattle and trucks rumbling by, like 18-wheelers rumbling by. And I came home after the first day and I told my parents that I wanted to quit. And this was part of a program called Rent-A-Kid, which was... <laughs> I cannot believe it's actually called that. <laughs> I know. It seems so non-PC right now, but it was called Rent-A-Kid. It was a way for people, basically poor kids, to get odd jobs. So you could be like, well, I need someone to mow the lawn. And who in this agency, it was like a social services agency, would, would assign you to a task for a day. So... So I was a rent-a-kid for this cranky old man in his barn. For a summer, right? For a summer, yeah. I think this was the, this was the early 90s. And so my father said, well, you're not quitting because you can't because we needed the money. And it wasn't really an option for me not to have a summer job. I needed to buy a car to college at that point. So dad took me back to the barn and helped me for a couple of hours. And he, at first, he just took the brush and he brushed one brick. And he said that I was letting myself get too intimidated by the enormity of the task and that I needed to just focus. Although he said it in his own cowboy slang, but that's what I took him to mean. And so he said, just focus, just, just scrape this one brick. And don't worry that you have an entire gigantic warehouse to scrape all summer. And so I did. And, and then we continued brick by brick across one row of the barn and... My father said, little and often makes much, and you have to carry on in this way. 
you will never finish it any other way. And that was this, you know, seared in my mind as this life memory, because then dad just went away. He went to work. He left me there to finish scraping. And I knew that there was no way I would ever finish unless I just sort of put my head down and, and worked hard a little bit every day. And eventually I did finish and used the money to buy my first car to go to college. And Gosh, that must have felt good. <laughs> it felt great. It was so gratifying. But of course, I was also like a bratty teenager. So, you know, I can see it with sort of rose-colored glasses now being a 44-year-old man. But I think, I'm sure back then I was a little petulant about it and a little impatient with that and just like angry that we were poor and that I had to have a job like this in the first place. And my father was not like a scholar or anyone that I would say was like full of wisdom, but he had this like cowboy rancher way about him where everything was just kind of plain spoken and practical. So these sort of words of advice would come out that might seem gruff if you heard them today spoken in New York, but they were just, just very matter of fact. I think the Plains people were quite matter of fact. Um, so anyway, then getting back to Cornell, I did a PhD in viticulture and I had to measure these acres and acres of grapevines and snip the clusters off and measure their sugars and their acids and their flavors. And oh, it was just awful work, but I just had to persist and just go and do a little bit every day. And it turns out that a lot of things in life I've come to realize are either conducted little and often or just happen little and often without us even knowing. There's beautiful things like the, the tides of the ocean come in, they bring in good, they carry out bad every day, twice a day, little and often. Glaciers scour the landscape little and often and trees grow little and often. And they're not consciously doing these things that just is how it is, how the earth works. And unfortunately, it's also how cancer works and how terrible things work. I mean, you could, you could look, you could get hit by a bus and, and die suddenly. But most of us are, <laughs> this may sound a little morbid, but most of us are living and dying little and often also. Um, and so as I wrote this book, I sort of expanded dad's uh, little nugget of wisdom into sort of a bigger idea about life. How did your dad become a rodeo star? Oh, gosh. And I almost requested that you wear his belt buckle. Oh, but I, I should have brought it with me. A little, I need to see those rubies. When you come to my house next, I'll show you. I have the buckle. Um, my dad won this buckle for, he was 1968. Uh, he was a national champion in, in rodeo. <laughs> and he has this buckle that was his trophy, and they spelled his name wrong. And he was so angry, <laughs> as you would be, right? It's a big deal. And they don't get big prize money in the rodeo. So the name kind of matters. So we had a jeweler in town, like, correct the letter that was wrong in our last name. And still to this day, like, that one letter is like a different metal alloy. So it looks different than all the other letters. But how did he get into rodeo? And that's all, that's all he knew. I mean, my family were Ukrainian immigrants that came in the late 1800s. They came into New York City and then took every train and motor coach and oxen pulled wagon that they could until basically the end of the frontier. And they landed at a town called Faith, South Dakota, and it was the last stop on the railroad. 
And it was my great-grandparents, Jake and Christine Pressler. And they settled there, and, and they had a wheat farm back in um, the Ukrainian steppes, kind of up towards Siberia. And they were enamored with South Dakota because it reminded them of, of Siberia because there's nothing there. It's just flat. And so rodeo and ranch life is just what people do there. And so I think my father grew up in it and it was a way, it's almost like kids in New York that play lacrosse or football after school, like kids out there, you do rodeo. <laughs> Just passes the time. There's one scene in the book that's so vivid and it's where his rodeo skills come just instinctively in handy to save your life. Can yes. you just tell us about that one scene to give people a taste of this man that is your dad? Sure. And how hard, like you described him in a couple of interviews as a Marlboro man type. And I yeah. think when you say that, it conjures such a strong image. But it's very hard when you're thinking mm. of if that represents masculinity. Well, a couple of things. First of all, I think my dad would see macho even to a super macho straight guy. Okay. This guy. <laughs> it's not just because I was gay. It was because the guy roped and cattle and, you know, and hunted and fished and was really self-reliant in so many ways. Um, but there was a time when I was just getting into horses. I would say I was about 10 or 11 and my dad took me horseback riding and we often went out in the pasture and, and checked on the cows and we, we had about 10,000 acres of ranch land in South Dakota, so it was vast. And so just we could ride horse until the horizon and it would still be our land. And we were riding and essentially we came across a rattlesnake and it scared, it spooked the horses. And dad's horse bucked and jumped around and he, being a rodeo athlete, you know, tamed it and withstood the bucking and everything was fine. But my horse uh, reared up and, and bucked me off onto the ground and... Um, <clears throat> just a few feet away from this coiled up rattlesnake. And I had the air knocked out of me. So I was like breathless and sitting there just staring at eye level with this hideous rattlesnake. And I don't even remember how it happened, but somehow my dad whipped it with a bull whip and snapped its head off, killed it essentially, and like blood splattered everywhere. And then, <laughs> and in the meantime, Again, time has a strange way of disappearing on me. He had also corralled, like lassoed my horse, which had gone wild after it bucked me off. My horse was running around. So somehow he had gathered my horse by the reins and come over and killed the snake and then stood over me like, how'd you get yourself into this situation? And I was just like, <gasps> gasping for air. And in the book, I used that story to describe how I felt when I learned that dad had died because it just felt like the air had been sucked out of my lungs. And I couldn't, I was so stunned, I just couldn't fathom how to move forward. He was both heroic and rough, but also, as I learned, really quite caring and gentle in his own way. But I never saw it that way until it was too late. There was also many other things you discovered about him after his death. And... I'd love you to share some of those things with us, but what was it like to open up this uh, a box that he had never opened and that your mom had, well, he had obviously 
opened at once. Um, but it was another box that was in the garage or some such that was almost just completely out of bounds for anyone in the family to yes. touch. Yes, there was a shoebox wrapped in duct tape in the basement, which he had instructed my mom not to open until he was until he was dead, basically. And so the day after the funeral, mom, we were kind of sorting through his clothes and, you know, that general shock that you're in, like the day after a funeral is one of the weirdest times, I think, because you're like, hmm, you're, you're, you're in tune with the fact that you need to do practical things, like you have to call the <laughs> the funeral home or the pharmacy. There's there's things you have to do, but in the meanwhile, you want to just kind of sit and stare at the wall. Well, anyway, so my mom, uh, being practically minded, brought the shoebox up from the basement and just thought, well, this was from your father, and now that he's gone, we're supposed to open this. And so we did, and inside we discovered a Bronze Star Medal from the U.S. Army and his commendation papers. So he had never told mom or anyone that he had received the bronze star from his service in Vietnam. It was a complete surprise to everyone, to her especially. And I didn't believe her that she didn't know. <laughs> I said, why would, why would he not even tell his wife? Um, and she said, well, maybe you were both good at keeping secrets. And it was both devastating, and but also like thrilling and kind of sad. All those things, all those feelings were together in that moment. Because I'm like so proud. Wow, we found all these medals and like these commendation papers from the president of the United States. And um, we also found some um, top secret security clearance papers for Cambodia. <clears throat> so we weren't even entirely sure, and we never will know, if he was actually in Vietnam or if he was in Cambodia or what he was doing um, and why was his mission top secret. He was, we thought, just an army guy. And I had written, I wrote a request to the National Archives of the Smithsonian to, to find, try to get his records, his service records, and they wrote back and said that nothing was available or it was still classified and that I couldn't know. Um, so we really never got any resolution to that. We just know that he had a bronze star. And I think what I know now, at least in my heart, is that he didn't want us to know because he probably wasn't proud of what he had to do over there. Uh, to earn it, not that you want to earn a bronze star, but um, war is just awful. I can't even imagine what he had to endure. So, um, yeah, it was a big discovery. And then it was sort of, I would say that was the first moment when I realized that there was so much of his life that I didn't know about and that I wanted to learn more and kind of peel back these layers of the onion to to find out. And the toolbox was my entree to doing that <laughs> so you you have his toolbox and you again that's another reason why you had to drive uh to the funeral instead of flying because you knew there was something to bring home and what was it like to hold those tools for the first time well it was magical and intimidating and it felt a little bit like I was posing or pretending that I knew even what to do. And to take a step back, I had driven to South Dakota. So it was my second cross-country road trip in two weeks, um, which was insane. And <laughs> it was in the middle of 
December with snowstorms and everything. And I got there and loaded up his toolbox and came back. And even on the drive home back to New York, I kind of felt his presence there, oddly. Like what's left of a person's life at the end, except for these, the memories that we have of them and then maybe some simple artifacts. Most people, you know, you're not going to die with seven homes and, a, you know, a famous career. Like most people just kind of die quietly and humbly and their life goes away. And driving back the 27 some hours from South Dakota to New York, it was strange. It was almost like I was hallucinating sometimes. I would look back at his toolbox in the back seat with my dog sitting next to them and just think, that's it. You know, that's what's left of a life. And what am I going to do with that? And how will I incorporate that into my own life? So through a whole series of decisions I and um, rationalizations, I decided to build a wooden boat. And picking up these tools for the first time was like, um, I just had no idea what I was about to get myself into, <laughs> for better or for worse. No, but I get that's, don't you find that that's the best things that end up happening to you in life if you had known the effort oh, and yeah. the anguish, you would not have done it, but you you can't, you can't ever know. And yeah. the best things... Maybe that's becoming an adult and realizing that sure. hard work makes you feel good. Yes. It's like, wow. Yeah, right. Damn I did, it. I did that. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it. in a way, it's like his, his first lesson to me, little and often, where if I had known in the beginning how hard building a boat would be, I probably wouldn't have done it. I really didn't grasp until I was in it and making all kinds of mistakes. But in the beginning, I thought, okay, well, I'll take this tool here and this hammer and this nail and I'll put these two pieces of wood together and, and start building. In some ways, it was a lot like writing the book. If you had told me three years ago how really gut-wrenching it would be to write a book about this experience, I may not have done it. I might have said, you know what? <laughs> That's okay. <laughs> you can keep your book deal. But little by little, I got into the process. And um, the, the enormity of it started to dawn on me. I was just this, you know, gay guy in New York City who had never built anything before. And then I cleared out my house to build this boat. Now that I, is something, <laughs> like, Marie Kondo would be very proud of. <laughs> like, it was radical, and I think... I'd love you to talk a bit more about exactly how sure. kind of radical that was because I think people relate in wanting to have sometimes a physical expression of what's going on on the inside and you need to wipe the slate clean. Yeah. Oh, I, I was angry at my dad. I was angry at my ex-husband. I was angry at myself. And I lived in this like a beach bungalow, kind of a rental house on the water in a town called Mattituck, New York. And it had a beautiful view across the whole bay, 
was Robbins Island in the distance and then the Hamptons. And once I decided to build a boat, I'm quite stubborn. So I thought, well, I have to do this. And where am I going to do it? I didn't have a garage. It was a rental house with like a bedroom and a common living area and a dining room. So in sort of a swooping moment of mania, I cleaned out my house and threw away almost everything that I owned, including a bunch of junky furniture and just the accumulation of 37 years of life and a life that I wasn't particularly thrilled with. And um, I pushed it aside. I threw most of it away or gave it away or... We're also talking um, like couches, beds. Yes. This isn't just like... <laughs> everyone, it's not like having a yard sale. This is the, yes. the the kind of structure of whatever everyone is sitting on or... Yes. And what did you sleep on? I slept on a sleeping bag on the floor and I had like a chair. I, you know, I had a plate and a fork and a knife and a pot and a pan and... I, looking back, and I processed this a lot to write the book too, but part of it I think was a little bit of self-flagellation, like punishment somehow. Like I have to, like I have to live bare bones. I have to like really strip it back to the basics so I can understand myself and it's going to be hard and it should be hard. Well, it's almost, <laughs> yeah. Who are you without the objects we accumulate and yes. the things to not necessarily what's in your house to project who you are, but it's interesting when you take that away and go, sure. how do I live up to myself? Am I interesting to myself yes. if I'm not signaling to others how much money I make or yeah. all these things? Yes, absolutely. And that's a terrifying thought to try to imagine yourself without everything that's around you <laughs> and to think, gosh, what if it just is me and my ideas and my spirit alone in this house with this this boat that I'm trying to build and my dog. And it, it it was, I think, a process of just stripping everything back to see like, well, who am I at my core? And and or who do I want to be? Like if I take all that away and just ask for a redo on life and say like, all right, the first 37 years were meh, okay. I have a career, but like some stuff didn't go as well as I wanted. And and then the task became, how do I build my life back up? And essentially from nothing. And there was a moment when I, naively, I thought canoes were carved. Somehow I thought I would be taking a giant tree trunk or something and carving it out. But no, actually, canoes, the modern way of building canoes is you have to build them from nothing, from scratch, one strip at a time. Um, and it was totally... Well, it was a metaphor for my life, obviously. I mean, it was just um, starting at the base level and um, laying those strips of wood up one by one. Well, in the book you talk beautifully about how choosing to build a canoe really linked you back to the very beginning of time. Part of the intrigue for me of building a canoe, and everyone always asks why a canoe, right? Um, part of it was that my earliest memories of dad were, and my happiest memories of dad were exploring nature in the wilderness, often hunting or fishing. He and his buddies had like a duck hunting blind, which was a canoe with cattails strapped all around it. Um, but even before that, historically, canoes were a link to the exploration of the world. I mean, not just, you know, what's now the United States, but there were humans building canoes, you know, 
tens of thousands of years ago, 7,000 years ago, 4,000 years ago, in different parts of the world where they didn't even know that the other existed, like from Greenland to Alaska to New Zealand and the South Pacific. And humans, this sort of arc of human ingenuity had led us to build a, a watercraft that was the same shape. Um, and I can only imagine, I can't imagine, it's impossible for me to even comprehend the mindset of someone, an indigenous person living thousands of years ago in some part of the world and thinking, standing at the shoreline of a body of water and thinking, I need to go out there. I need to explore what's out there. Not knowing even if at that point, if the world is round or flat or what land they're going to ever hit on the other side. And they either have to be totally crazy or desperate or I think um, ready for something else. Maybe they want to catch food or escape or find freedom. Yeah, something further and forward, which I think is also something resonant in your book is this idea of just move forward a little bit. What can move you forward even if you are grieving, sad, depressed, and for you finding a an action um, helped so much. It did, and it helped me link, I think, link myself to other generations and other peoples. And it, in a way, the whole goal of all of it, which I didn't quite realize in the moment, was that I would kind of put on my father's um, skin, in a way, his clothes, his tools, and live in his shoes. And he was not a boat builder, but he worked very hard to build things every day on the ranch, whether it was fences or barns or whatever. Um, And I know that even if you're terribly sad uh, and grieving, which I was, to just be able to get up in the morning and glue a couple of pieces of wood together was like, oh, at least I did that. Something something pretty okay happened today. I glued some wood together. <laughs> there was one day in the epoxy, is epoxy the right way I'm saying yes, it? In yeah. One day in the epoxy process, you gave yourself a Brazilian wax. <laughs> oh, God. Can you, I, how did that I was happen so exactly? Naive. I mean, after <laughs> I finished building this boat, I glued everything together. I sanded it. I was on the home stretch, and I just had to apply fiberglass to the outside to make it waterproof. And you use this fiberglass cloth and then you pour epoxy, which is like a liquefied plastic material, onto the fiberglass. And it makes this intensely hard substrate. It's actually four times harder than steel of the same thickness. Um, This is how many modern boats are made. Anyway, so I didn't read the safety manual or the instructions, really. I was kind of just whipping this stuff together and stirring these cups and pouring it on. And... I was so exhausted because I had to put on four coats over the course of a day and you had to wait like three or four hours between coats. So it was like, you know, it was like a 16 hour day of just working nonstop and I hadn't really eaten or slept or drank much. And I finished and I was just collapsed on the floor in exhaustion and I fell asleep and I had epoxy on my clothes and shoes and jeans. And basically I glued myself to the floor (laughs) And I woke up in a complete panic, hysterical, like, oh, my God, oh, my God, what have I done? (laughs) And I had to, like, peel my clothes off my body and 
my dog had epoxy on his fur and he was stuck to the bed sheets where he was sleeping. I mean, it was this catastrophe. And I was um, unaware of what would happen next, which was that I, I turns out I'm deeply allergic to epoxy. I had a, um, I mean, it's contact dermatitis. I also had chemical burns on my body and I had to go to the emergency room. My breathing was getting labored. Like it was just like, oh my God. And then my skin broke out. And this was the point in the book, I guess it's a spoiler alert, but where I decided to quit. I just thought, wow, this is all too much. This is a disaster. And I was, I'm allergic. I'm allergic to boat building. <laughs> I may as, I should keep, take my hand away from the flame. <laughs> but quitting, um, I think was what gave me the resolve to finish. Um, and I'm not sure if I could have succeeded in the end if I hadn't really messed up in the beginning. Um. <laughs> yeah, we don't want to give away because it's such a one, like it's a great scene. So I don't want to go there too much. But I think, you know, there is a rock bottom that mm -hmm. sometimes, especially I'm sure with grief of that kind, yeah, there's a moment of real expression of rage that yeah. actually I don't know maybe you need before there is that yeah how do I right okay we've done that and right. I'm still here right I had to throw away some emotions I had to express some rage to about dad and about myself but just um and about my imperfections and my inability to make this whole project work. And I was just, I was growing so frustrated. And um, in a sense, I didn't plan it this way, but the whole journey really was kind of like the five stages of grief. And, um, and the book parallels that as well as I build the boat over the course of a year. But um, yeah, I won't say too much about that, but there was, there is a chapter that's kind of more focused on my anger about the whole thing. And then there's, there are chapters that have more reconciliation and grace in them. Um, but I also, um, that rock bottom place, I mean, wow. What we haven't talked about yet is that I have a sister. She was, she had a rare neurological disease. It doesn't even have a name because there's, it's not studied enough to know. Um, it has a scientific name, which is olivopontocerebellar atrophy with type three ataxia. And it's basically like a child onset version of Lou Gehrig's disease. So she was kind of normal-ish until like 10 or 11 and then started having seizures and losing control of her bodily functions until eventually she was in her early 20s and basically paralyzed. And uh, the, the sense that I had when she died was not the sense that I had all these years later. I mean, when she died, I was just so devastated and so completely racked um, with grief. <clears throat> and it was complicated by something uh, that in retrospect was um, <clears throat> quite extraordinary, but I had brought a boyfriend to her funeral. I was so upset. I was at Cornell in grad school and I was like failing my classes and bawling. And like, so I brought this, uh, a boyfriend with me and I was not out to my family. Um, but I brought him there anyway and kind of just said, oh, here's my roommate or my special friend, you know, ugh. just so awkward and sad and devastating. And um, I look back, I mean, I was in my early 20s then and 
I shake my head, but. But also uh, I was, as I was reading the book, I wondered about that kind of commingling of the trauma of that experience. Of yeah. the, there's the one, the grief of losing your sister, but when you couple that with also the experience of not being out and trying yeah. to have some support yeah. where you like of course you want your boyfriend there of course and then not having your family accept and embrace yeah. that right it's almost like having two very serious problems collide and how do you untangle yes. them yes and i was incapable of untangling them until i wrote this book essentially i mean deep trauma for years the sense of rejection from my parents' church and even from my family, just that I couldn't be myself and also be accepted. Um, I don't think a lot of people realize how devastating that is for gay kids. It's this unique kind of feeling of, well, this is who I am and who I am is broken and who I am is not enough and who I am deserves to be treated badly and cast out. And to have that feeling happen around the same at the on the same day that I'm, we're burying my 26 year old sister was just too much. And writing the book was, in some ways, re-traumatizing. But I knew I had to kind of dive back into those emotions to really figure out um, the narrative around what that meant to me and what it means to me now. Um, but part of my motivation for building the canoe. Also, was that I've always felt somehow like I'm living a life for two people. Like my sister could not do anything. She was just horribly disabled from the very beginning. And, you know, she couldn't, she couldn't eat or walk or talk, much less go to college, you know, or go to graduate school or do anything that we consider to be like a way to have a meaningful life. Um, so when I contemplated quitting and building the canoe, it made me feel like the biggest disappointment to myself. No one would know or care if this guy, this crazy guy in New York, started building a canoe in his living room and quit. <laughs> you know, the world didn't know at that point what was going on. But I would have known. Yeah. And I would have had to carry that with me my whole life. So I had to finish. And often it's about finishing something you started no matter the result. Yes. Yeah, I tried to let go a little bit of the imperfections of the whole thing and think, okay, well, this is not going to be the most beautiful boat. <laughs> but can I at least limp across the finish line and have something that floats? <laughs> well, it did end up being one of the most beautiful boats. <laughs> It turned out pretty good. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's a beautiful boat. I still have it. Um, when I look at it, I see all my mistakes, of course. No, no one else does. When they see it, they're like, oh, my God, this is it's a 20-foot-long cedar boat. It's totally beautiful. But I'm, I'm like, well, yeah, there's the part where I gouged the wood too deep. But it's all <laughs> the memories, too, in that. Yeah. yeah. Like tied up in those, you know, the one thing that the book does so beautifully, which I hadn't expected to enjoy so much, was your description of building the canoe very specifically and the different types of woods. And there's an amazing moment kind of early on where you recognize that 
the fact that you want to build a boat from wood, but then you go and visit in the Pacific Northwest the the forest, the ancient forest, and see the the logging devastation, um, but also trying to reconcile the hypocrisy of all of us. Oh yeah. Who I mean, I'm looking around this room and I see mm-hmm. wood, 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 wood. Yeah. And yeah, how I mean, you're tied to the land more than most of us. Mm. How can we? Yeah. How do you reconcile that kind of every day? Boy, it's tough. Uh, I really wanted to see the old growth trees. I had never seen a giant tree before. And I happened to be in Oregon for some business conference and I decided to go into the forest. And um, and it's just breathtaking if you haven't seen a gigantic tree before. It's like something everyone should do, I think. How big exactly are they? Because when you describe them in the book, I couldn't fathom like yeah. a 27-story building. Oh, yeah. I mean as a tree. It's it's mind-blowing. They're sometimes 200 over 200 feet tall. Uh, and 30 between say 18 and 35 feet across in diameter uh, of the trunk at the bottom. And um, I mean, it's so the living room we're sitting in right now would be this entire room would be the the trunk of the tree. And sta- no, you can't comprehend it. And standing in front of them, they absorb all the sound around you. And you know that feeling of like when you brush up against something and your arm hair isn't touching it, but you know you're close to an object because like there's this sensation of your hair, like the air pressure has changed. Um, that's what it's like being with the old growths. You feel this almost like this deadening in your ears because the sound has been removed and there's big objects, big living beings all around you. And it is just, um, you just feel so small and you feel like, I guess, I think I felt very short-lived, not just short, but I also felt like, wow, my lifespan in the scheme of this tree's lifespan that might be 600 up to a thousand years old is um, is pretty minuscule, and um, of course, I'm also complicit in the slaughter in a way, and that's the hard thing to grapple with. Which was that I'm building a boat and using lumber, and it's a drop in the bucket, of course. Like trillions of board feet of lumber are used every year to build homes and everything else, but for my little canoe in the living room, uh, I wanted somehow to be connected to where that happened, uh, to where the wood came from, and then to make something beautiful to respect it, Um, which I felt like was, in a way, somehow I could balance my impact on the environment. (laughs) So one of your friends in the book, Dave, is particularly wonderful. Mm -hmm. But there was a very specific moment that I feel people can take a lot from or resonate with. And it was at the very beginning of this process and you were kind of feeling like I'm not a boat builder, I've never done this. And he took you, you were in the city, in New York City, and he took you to get kitted out, like Uh, this beautiful outfit that was for a woodworker. Yes. Uh, What was that like and what was the significance of that? Well, um, it felt at first like I was just dressing up 
as a woodworker for Halloween and that I was like a fraud, right? Who am I? I'm putting on these khaki pants with the little loop for the hammer and most men in Brooklyn <laughs> dress this way yeah, anyway. Exactly. So you shouldn't have felt terrible about it. <laughs> and the wooden boot or the uh, leather boots and the whole thing, but of course, growing up with my father, the clothes that one wears is very much linked to their profession and their way of life. My dad wore leather chaps and cowboy boots and a cowboy hat. And they were functional. It's not just sort of caricature. You know, the hat keeps the sun off your face and your neck. And cowboy shirts are often long sleeved to keep the sun and the dust off of your arms. And the chaps protect your legs from rope burn. Um, it all has That's a function. What are they for? Yeah, it's so that when you rope a cow and you attach the rope around the saddle horn, the rope can slap against your thigh and not dig into your skin and, and hurt you. That's the actual function of chaps. I've lived this long and <laughs> never known. <laughs> so, yes, so I have a dear friend who, uh, beginning of the process, took me to Brooklyn, and it was a bespoke uh, Korean tailor. And it, so it wasn't like we were in some Western store in South Dakota, but we uh, he did outfit me sort of in a more rugged style. Uh, I had been working at a winery and dressing not quite that way. And he said that um, he wanted to have me kind of imagine how I might take on this new role for myself. And that sometimes when you're scared, I think you have to kind of try on the clothes and put yourself there emotionally and think, okay, I can do this. I'm going to do this. I'm going to build a boat. So here I have my little workman's pants and my plaid shirt and like a pencil to tuck behind my ear. And I was like, <laughs> it was a way to ease myself into the idea of doing this very serious kind of thing. At least I could look the part, even if I didn't entirely feel the part. Well, how many boats have you built now? Five. <laughs> and that first boat took about a year? About a year, yeah. And I loved it so much when it was done that I felt like this sort of emptiness in my life where I thought I really, I enjoyed that. I learned so much about myself and I wanted to continue doing it. So I I ended up starting a business, and now I've, I've I've sold three, and I have two more in the works. So I'm building about one a year, and I still have my job at the winery. So it's not like I have time to do this full time, but it is transporting to still to step into the wood shop and to feel myself in that space. It may not be loaded with all the grief and emotions of what I wrote about in the book, since I have grown and moved on and. Now, boat building is, is a vocation and not just like a desperate cry for help. <laughs> but his, the original canoe does hang in the rafters, so I'm, I'm reminded of it constantly. I'm going to ask the question I ask everyone. What lights you up? <gasps> Ooh, that's a curveball. What lights me up? Um, beautiful craft. Mm. I love things that are made well by hand and that are a little imperfect and they're clearly not machined by some robot but um like just today i had a very good friend of mine built me a uh, ping pong table for my house which i it's sort of off topic but i just always wanted a ping pong table and he made me this bespoke handmade walnut ping pong table it's the most rapturously beautiful ping pong table i think that the world has ever seen and like the net has this leather the net is like saddle leather with these um, copper rivets. Uh, 
I mean, and he made it. He made like, it. Like I think that's it. Like so much of our lo- modern lives is about buying your way there. Yes. And this is why there's so much un- dissatisfaction. Like yeah. it's a shortcut, and right. it's hollow. Yes. And things that are made well, I know I would never throw away. And when I purged my house of everything to start that canoe, it was because nothing meant anything to me. Nothing lit me up. It was just like, you know, factory outlet kind of stuff, which is fine. You have to live a life and make a house. But now I'm slowly creating more, sort of curating more of a space in my house for handmade things. And almost always I know the maker personally. So I can say that Josh made this or Kevin made that. And it means something to me. And I don't know if I'll ever be able to pass those on to someone later in life but um for now anyway they mean a lot to me and i do light up when i see them that's the best a handmade ping pong table lights yeah. you up nailed it <laughs> nailed it Trent, thank you so so much for chatting my pleasure thanks for having me you're big on instagram um <laughs> how can we follow you and yes. and find out everything you're up to instagram is pressler woodshop so p-r-e-s-z-l-e-r woodshop um, and there's also an audiobook which was read by the actor Matt Bomer, and it's beautiful. Like his voice is like silk. It's a whole other experience almost from reading the book. Um, so yeah, Instagram's probably the the place to go where you can link up to more information about the book and to Harper Collins' website as well. That's great. Thanks again. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to my conversation with Trent Presler. His book, Little and Often, is available through the link on our website, lituppodcast.com. Lit Up is a podcast from Sugar23. It's hosted by me, Angela Ledgewood, and is produced by Liam Billingham. Mike Mayer and Michael Sugar are the executive producers. The theme music is by Andre Rudofsky. Please make sure to rate, review, and follow the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you like to listen. Until next time, bye everyone. Bye.